welcome back for a new episode of Design Cafe, where we like to have candid and deep conversations about UX design. We share about our thoughts and experience working as a designer in the tech industry. In this fourth season, we've decided to challenge ourselves by discussing some difficult taboo topics. So we'll cover things like mental health at work, dealing with toxic workplaces and the challenges of career progression. Basically topics that um, make you a bit uncomfortable to talk about, but are really important as they impact us all. I'm your co-host Sandrine. And I'm your co-host Susan. We intend to release a new episode every couple of weeks on a Friday. And in the meantime, if you'd like to hear a bit more about us, you can find us on Twitter at Design Cafe or on LinkedIn on Design Cafe. And we also have a website uh, at designcafe.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast a little bit further, you can leave us a review on your podcast platform and you can also buy us uh, a coffee on buymeacoffee.com slash designcafe. So in this week's episode, uh, Susan and I are going to be tackling a new topic and we've decided to chat about um, being human at work. And by that we mean that we're going to talk a little bit about um, what you should do in the workplace when you can be either emotional or things are going on and basically... How does the workplace evolve with those human traits? How does your leadership team deal with them? How does, do your coworkers as well experience them and so forth? And we're going to talk a bit about how, I guess, your life background or experiences can influence you at work as a, as a human being and how you interact with others. So that's roughly what we're going to talk about today. So Susan, maybe to get us started, um, could you maybe define a bit what we mean by our human traits? Always prepared, Susan. Scribble down a list. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I, I wanted to. I wanted to. I actually did want to scribble down a list because um, I wanted to cover human traits that maybe are a bit outside of the obvious. Um, so what did I write? Uh, human traits. So actually, I'm going to get a bit technical, but when I studied psychology, we differentiated between state and trait. So state is a, is a temporary state of being human or emotional. So for example, if I'm very anxious, I'm in an anxious state, but I'm not anxious all the time. So anxiety isn't a trait I have, maybe. So some people might say <laughs> it is, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, state is like when you're temporarily, temporarily affected by something and trait is more of a during stable part of your identity and your personality. Yeah, that was that lesson. Um, <laughs> anyway, what do we mean by human traits? So traits are some of the more kind of durable parts of our identities and personalities and human selves. It could be things like sexual orientation. Um, your gender identity, it could be your so socioeconomic background, it could be your culture, how you were brought up, um, maybe where, which countries or which cultures you spent your formative years and other countries you've, you've spent a lot of time in. It could be your language, it could be whether or not you're an immigrant, age, any ability or disability or neurodivergence you have. It could be also... I don't know. Actually, I don't know if this is a state or a trait. Maybe it's a well, it's a it's a trait of being a person who has who ovulates or has periods uh, and, and things like that. But I was I, I jotted down PMS periods, menopause, and then also 
the role, maybe this is less of a trait and less of a state, but the role of being a caretaker or having kids or having elderlies, you need to look after that affects you as well. Yeah, that's so. So I mean, there, there are other things to this, but I think we would we would classify these human traits as things that very much define or influence your perception of the world and how you relate to yourself and other people and how also how you relate to dynamics in in the workplace that influence influence how you get on with work basically yeah that's a very exhaustive list i actually had a much more narrowed down view of what traits would uh, comprehend i guess for me it was mostly for me when you say traits i kind of go straight to personality traits which is probably a a way of like oversimplifying I guess, how complex, because I guess your personality even is influenced, as you say, by your background, your culture, and I guess, yeah, the various choices or things that surround you in your life. So it's quite interesting. And I like how you make a difference between the, the trait and the state as well. But I guess your state will be influenced by some of your traits as well, right? The way yeah, definitely. I guess some people will have a state that is more intense than others maybe like depending on on their traits if that makes sense mm, yeah oh if you want to talk about personalities <laughs> oh my god this is this episode is turning it into like susan geeks out about her psychology uh background but but yeah it, personality traits is i didn't even cover personality traits so so <laughs> thanks for, thanks for picking up on that um so we're gonna oh well i am going to ignore the whole like uh myers briggs stuff because like psychologists don't take that seriously. So if you're thinking about actual psychological re research, um, the most psychological research backed up um, personality traits that people tend to talk about in the literature are the big five. So the big five personality traits are whether or not you're extroverted or introverted. So they're not binary. It's usually a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you're some somewhere on the spectrum of extroversion and introversion, Yeah, which we talked about. There's whether or not you are agreeable, <laughs> so agreeableness. It's the extent to which you are conscientious. So conscientiousness is um, like I'm very conscientious in that I'm very organized and I want to I want to do my duties and I want to do things properly. And I'm, I'm not very lax with things and I'm not a very YOLO <laughs> person. <laughs> I kind of I kind of <laughs> wish I was sometimes I'm a bit like, I don't know, I feel like I sometimes you know, I'm a bit uptight. Uptight is a is a another way of calling conscientious people. Uh, what was that? That was uh, that was three. Uh, the fourth one is openness to experience. Uh, so it's whether or not you're mm -hmm. open to new ideas, people, uh, uh, experiences. And then the last one is neuroticism. So it's the extent to which you're quite neurotic um, as a person. So yeah, those are kind of the the kind of classic personality traits as well. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of people have been putting influence on the Myers-Briggs. I mean, even myself, I find it fun to take the, the tests just to know what, obviously what you get, right? But I think I have seen some people using it quite extensively sometimes in the workplace. And I, I don't know if putting a label on people through this test is really the best thing to do. I feel like it can feel quite like you're being put into that box, right? And you can't really escape your, I don't know, whatever that those letters that you get you can't really escape them basically and you're kind of like boxed into them and there's definitely a risk there i agree i this is also i mean i think myers-briggs is fun in the same way as 
horoscopes are fun, <laughs> but but I don't take them seriously. It's more like, haha, look at this. I would not use horoscopes or Myers-Briggs to make any decisions in a work context. And, and I completely agree. I don't like the way they, they, they categorize you and they kind of box you into an archetype almost. Uh, and I think, I think, yeah, 16personalities.com actually do call these categories archetypes, um, which is a very oversimplified way of, of looking at humans. And so the big five personality traits, which are taken a lot more seriously, they, instead of trying to categorize you, they just look at, um, they're not levers, but they're sort of like these dials you have on each of these personality traits. And they're a lot more um, multidimensional, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Bringing us back uh, onto topic a bit, I was actually wondering how, you know, there's a lot of workplaces where they say, bring your whole self to work um, and so on, you know, be be yourself, be no, no, no. And sometimes I actually don't know if they really mean that. <laughs> how do you How do you relate to that? I have a very complicated relationship to it. I think on the one hand, I like the idea. <laughs> And I would like to encourage people to feel safe enough to bring their whole selves to work. But on the other hand, I think it's dangerous. So I feel like I, I feel a bit like a hypocrite again because I think I've banged on about how oh, it's so important to bring your whole self to work before. But I think the the complicated aspects of it is that it puts a lot of emphasis on the employees to be vulnerable and to bring their whole selves to work and to show their human traits and states but it assumes that the workplace is safe enough and leadership is equipped enough to deal with those whole selves and I don't think in many cases the workplace is and so when you ask employees to open up and be vulnerable you're also putting them in a dangerous position where the power imbalance is usually in in favor of of the employer of the of the business rather than the employee so it's not it's not as easy as just bringing your whole self to work i think the workplace needs to be equipped to handle those whole selves and to commit to dealing with those whole selves to work and not punish people for for being human so yeah it's it's complicated but i think i think there's something to the importance of allowing people to bring their whole selves to work, but also to allow people not to bring their whole selves to work. Because that's that's a personality trait as well. Like some people don't want to talk about their house renovations and their kids and their menopause at work. Some people want to come to work and just work and focus and, and want to have that clear delineation between work life and personal life. And they shouldn't be forced to open up. So, yeah. I also feel a bit ambiguous about it. I think it's it's difficult to bring your whole self at work sometimes. I find that workplaces that claim that you can bring your whole self, sometimes people feel like it's almost, um, it puts pressure on people almost. It's like, oh my God, okay, I I have to bring my whole self. I have to be myself. What does that mean? Sometimes we barely actually know enough about ourselves to even know, you know, what does that even mean? And I think it can put, yeah, tremendous pressure on individuals to to act out or I don't know, put on a a personality hat that actually sometimes feels doesn't really suit them, but it feels like it's the the workplace almost expecting this. And going back to our extroverted workplace episode that we did, sometimes I feel like it's almost 
trying to bring that trade out of people. And sometimes it, it goes a little bit against actually what people are about. So yeah, I I think there's a good intention behind, but I think sometimes it can put a lot of pressure. And as you said, sometimes people just want to go to work to focus on what they're doing and what there is to achieve and not have to worry about how they are how they are and how they're perceived as individuals yeah i completely agree and i think it's i think it's less about bringing your whole self to work and more around bringing human traits to work as as it makes sense to shed light on those human traits so for example if you if you're from a different culture than the majority culture in your workplace for example and your cultural background means that you're used to communicating in a different way then maybe it makes sense to highlight that and and say you know I'm because of my culture I'm used to doing it this way so this is a little bit of a challenge for me to adjust so please be patient with me and that's less about bringing their whole self to work and talking about you know their dog's uh, operation etc etc and more around this is the part of me and my identity and my personality that influences how I relate to this collaboration or this project and explaining to the rest of your team or to your leaders that it that part of you what makes you you can 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 have an influence and just making people aware because i think sometimes especially even if you're if you're in quite a or relatively homogenous workplace or not even homogenous but you're in a you're in a workplace where the leadership and the majority culture is different from your own people don't always notice the the employees that are not part of that majority representation and and people just assume everyone's part of it and and there are a lot of assumptions of like oh yeah of course this is how we're used to doing things and everyone knows that but when you're a bit I don't want to say outside but when you're not necessarily 100% part of that majority it's not always obvious that that you think a bit differently or you do things a bit differently so it's it's worth creating a space but from both ends both from the employee and the and the leaders and the, and the managers to create a bit of a space maybe in the beginning of a project or in the beginning of when a new team is formed to map out those in those differences and those influences and and uh, the different people <laughs> that, that are going to work together and, and kind of just highlight those differences yeah I agree I think this is something that can be resolved through ways of working workshops sometimes um, I think there's a really interesting books called the culture map that actually touch on yeah, the difference yeah. of I've communications of depending on your culture and all that so I think it touches quite a bit on that topic. Um, but yeah, again, here, I think we, we're really talking about like the ways you would communicate. And obviously it relates back to, to who you are as a person. Going back to that whole self to work, it's like, what, what are you supposed to do when actually you you take on that that advice or that that motto, I guess? And what do you do when you 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 feel like you're bringing your whole self at work and it actually backlashes at you because maybe you've, you know, you, I don't know, acted or showed a state of emotion that actually is not particularly thought of appropriate in the workplace. Like, how do you, what do you do in those situations? That's an incredibly tricky one because it it shows the complete power imbalance at play. So yeah, uh, let's let's take an example. Let's say... Let's say you're 
I don't know, let's uh, let's say you're on your period or you're on your, on your PMS and you're incredibly, if you're anything like me, <laughs> then you're incredibly anxious and um, insecure. And if I didn't feel comfortable enough to say that in the workplace that you know I'm on my PMS now like I'm feeling really anxious and insecure and and I and I I don't know what I'm doing it could backlash in the sense that my manager or my teammates would would think oh Susan doesn't seem very confident like why why she she doesn't seem to have the seniority and the and the abilities to do this job we don't really trust her with this because they they would they would know or if I even said I had PMS and they still thought like, oh, she, she, oh, those, and, and I was in, a, and I was in a workplace with lots of men who couldn't, you know, empathize necessarily with, with having PMS. The, the backlash could be, you know, oh, just, we shouldn't have. Okay, I'm taking this to the extreme, but it's like, oh, women on their PMS, they're so insecure. We can't put her in front of clients or stakeholders because she's so anxious. This is extremely extreme. Um, <laughs> but but that sort of backlash, right? So like, what do you do when 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 the people more senior to you or leadership don't understand that that it's a temporary um well it's both a temporary state but it's also a trait in that you're a woman like a lot of women will go through this um so yeah back to the question what do you do i don't know i you revolt <laughs> you you leave um i'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking I'm, I'm speaking in jest um obviously you don't stage a revolution but it's really tricky i think what I've learned over time is to when I look for new places to work, I try to suss out like how open minded is this company? How, um, actually, one of the questions I asked in an interview um, a little while ago was um, how would the rest of the team react if I in stand up said I have PMS today? And I'm feeling really shit, just so you're aware I can work, but like it's, it's I'm just having a really rough week. How would the team react? And I mean, that's again, that's easier said than done to just ask those questions in an interview setting when you really want the job. But it, it helps you. It can to a certain extent help you help you filter out the bad seeds from the good seeds in the, when you're looking for a job. But yeah, it's tricky when you're already in that job and you might not easily find another job yeah I don't know I, I don't know what do you do <laughs> yeah no no it's obviously it's it's a question that I'm not even sure we can we can answer <laughs> fully so <laughs> um it's difficult I think what ends up happening is that if if people have shared and then they backlashed it's very likely that they will stop sharing in the future and or they might be just of a cautious nature for example, that's often what I'm like, where I just, if I have an option between sharing or not sharing, I will probably choose not to share. Um, simply because I just don't often feel good when I share to the group, um, especially the group being a group that I don't know well. And that's often the case in the workplace. So, um, and sometimes I share very insignificant aspects of myself to the group and I feel really strange about it. So I'm like, wow, if I was to share an actual importance piece of myself then how would I feel about that <laughs> so then I tend to actually not share and I guess that's also because you it, it comes through also seeing how these things have not always been received well um, in your past experience um, I have seen actually um, some colleagues sometimes expressing anxiousness or you know not being really sure they were 
um, confident on one part of their design process, for example, and because they were saying this out loud and sometimes they felt like they were saying this out loud to someone trusted, like a mentor and all of that. But instead, sometimes it was actually backlashing at them in the terms of like, oh, well, because that person says they're not confident, then therefore they must not have the expertise on this or etc. When actually what you just need to do is to actually take a deeper look at the work and being like, actually, this person is just doubting themselves and we just need to bring up the confidence, but the work is absolutely fine. And what I find is really frustrating is when the, and I guess that's where biases as, as human beings come in, is where we we stop being um, objective and we start actually looking at a person's work through the perception we have of them as opposed to the facts of what they've actually delivered. And when that starts happening, whether that's to me or to someone else, that's when I get quite, I don't know, it's quite disheartening because you're like, well, what are you supposed to do now, basically? It's quite a tricky situation to get out of. And then you have to deal with human biases and subjectivity. And if the person in front of you isn't particularly self-reflective or, um, I don't know, savvy in psychology, then how do you get them to realize that they are full of biases and then they are not actually looking objectively at the situation? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, and I've actually observed um, almost positive bias in that regard as well. So um, I'll give an example. So I, I used to work in a, in a place where, um, I, again, this goes back to culture and communication styles in different culture, I think. Um, so it was a person who, who just had a very different communication style in the team because of their culture. And we talked about it a lot, actually, as a team. But part of the reason why we talked about it a lot was because um, the team lead was from a similar culture as that uh, one person who, who sort of, I don't want to say that one person struggled a bit. I think we, as a team, we struggled because of, uh, the, uh, because of the, the differences in culture. And that helped because the, the leader in that team could empathize with and experience and res- recognize a lot of the cultural differences that, uh, that this uh, particular team member faced. And it, it, is it positive bias? I don't know. It's, it's not positive bias, is it? I'm, I'm talking myself into a hole here. I think it's more, uh, uh, it speaks to the importance of diversity in leadership and having yourself represented when you're a minority because the fact that that team leader who wasn't just one person's lead, it was that person, it was the whole team's lead, could bring some of that empathy and understanding to the rest of the team so we could all understand, okay, this is, you know, these are the reasons why our communication is quite challenging right now. It's, it's cultural difference and let's work through it. Whereas if that uh, team member who was from a different culture than most of us didn't have that representation in leadership, they wouldn't necessarily have someone to speak for them and they'd have to pick that fight themselves. And, and that can be that can be difficult, especially when your team leader doesn't fully understand your perspective. So yeah, maybe perhaps a lot of the backlash comes from when these differences in human traits or this lack of understanding in human traits aren't reflected in leadership and they're not supported by leadership. And we, we talk about this a lot. It, it really does come back to having that representation in leadership and also have leadership show their own vulnerability and show that they can also be um, anxious or struggle with communication because they're from a different background or 
struggle with um, focusing on work because they have lots of things going on in their life and you know kids and um, family members who are ill that they need to look after etc etc so it, it helps that leadership takes part in in the sharing of human traits and not just and not just you know the, the kind of kind of on the, on the receiving end of other people's human traits yeah I think you touched on something interesting there around how can we encourage leaders to also be vulnerable and human I feel like sometimes maybe they get the wrong impression that they have to be that strong figure of authority or whatever it is I don't know I think sometimes it comes from a good place where they really want to act as an umbrella for their team and I feel like they really have to shield people from everything including themselves but actually I think the problem when you do that is that sometimes your team just has zero idea of what you're going through and they can't build compassion towards you and I think often in a workplace we we tend to lack compassion for each other and that's because we don't understand what any of us are going through. And if leadership doesn't share what challenges they're facing and they don't have to go in depth sometimes there's stuff that they can't really talk about because there's decisions they're not allowed to talk to, but it's still weighed down on them. So I don't know, how can we encourage leaders as well to express to their teams that there are some things going that they're working through? I don't know, sometimes it might actually help the, the team help them identify why the person behave the way they do that there are pressures applied to them etc because on otherwise you can only assume and then when the person starts showing i don't know kind of negative aspects of themselves for too long people start actually stop excusing it through oh you know like it, at some point people stop giving you excuses when actually sometimes you do deserve to have that excuse so it's often better to just open up about it yeah yeah completely agree and i'm just i'm just mulling over the gap between between people not feeling comfortable enough to share their human traits on the one end so you have this culture of uh fear and i'm gonna call it extreme professionalism yeah that's a good way of putting it <laughs> where everyone's expected to be just professional all the time um on one end robots <laughs> robots exactly and on the other end of the spectrum, that leadership also opens up. Um, it's it's a big gap to travel through from from one end of extreme prof professionalism to leadership opening up. So I'm just mulling over what what is the in between stage? What, like what are things that can happen in between to help us get to a place where um, it's being demonstrated from the top that it's okay to show human traits once in a while. And I'm, my mind is cast back to this this example I observed once where I was in a company with lots of different teams and I would say as the company as a whole maybe wasn't as mature in terms of showing vulnerability and yeah showing human traits and opening up about these things but teams were were set up to be very autonomous and cross-functional and empowered and so on and so there was one team in particular where the team lead created a very strong culture within that team to be vulnerable and, and be human and, and so on. And that team leader kind of brought a lot of that uh, openness and psychological safety wider up to the to the rest of the company and to the rest of the leadership. So it was almost like a, like one team 
in in amongst several teams set the example of how you could build a strong uh, psychologically safe team and and show the rest of the company how how important that was and how significant it was that um, that people could open up at work so it was instead of putting the burden on one individual to open up one employee to open up and instead of having to make that massive jump to you know leadership opening up um it sort of started with the team and that helped a lot i think because it was less of a burden of it on any individuals but it was also a strong enough signal it was enough people <laughs> to, to demonstrate uh, a good impact on on what that means and hope i'm making sense it's a bit of fluffy i don't want to be too specific uh, with the example but i think it, it did have a really good cross company cultural influence in how we spoke to each other over time um and yeah that's just a very good example of of um leading by example is that the term i think so um uh, from that team yeah, and that team I think it is, yeah. so that's a sort of like in between thing that that might help uh it's, it's like a step in the right direction when it starts with a team yeah i i think this is great when it's led the right way i have seen it though not done quite quite, quite well where um some leaders were encouraging this circle of truth in, in in teams and i don't know what it was but the the safety net the psychological safety wasn't there yet so that circle of truth felt actually really uncomfortable and yeah i think there's a way of like bringing it to it i don't know exactly what are the right steps to get to that point but i don't think you can really skip the steps too fast as well so so yeah but it's good that you've managed to see an example of it being applied positively and actually effectively as well um i i think the issue as well sometimes with this whole human traits and all that is that it's very down to the individual i think some of us would be <laughs> don't want to generalize but i think some people are ge just generally more carefree than others um I think some individuals, they bring quite quite a few triggers. We all have triggers, right? But I think some of us have are more likely to come across triggers in the workplace than some other people. And I was wondering, how can leadership, the workplace, or colleagues kind of support individuals when this happens, but also at some point, when, when do you also have as an individual... I guess, recognize where there are things that just shouldn't happen in the workplace as well. You know what I mean? Where's the balance as well? Yeah, that's a very tricky one. Yeah, for example, if if you were a very anxious child, you might you might be quite triggered by any public speaking. If you're conflict avoidant, you might be con uh, triggered by conflict. It's, it's tricky. On the one hand, as an individual, you need to let your manager, first and foremost, know that these situations can be triggering. And then, then I think the manager needs to help and support the individual in, in taking, in identifying what small steps can happen or should happen and, and in what order roughly in order to move towards a world where those situations aren't so triggering. So let's take the public speaking thing as an example. Like, you know, I, I think it's quite common that, it's a, it's a common human trait that you grow up with some social anxiety, not saying that everyone has, but and but you know that it's that you don't like public speaking. I, I see so many 
like professional public speakers also talk about how they used to be terrified of public speaking. It's not unusual. And so instead of kind of throwing the individual out in the deep end and asking them to do a big public speaking engagement or a presentation or speak at a conference, what are some kind of smaller, safer environments we can create for them to to practice that muscle? So could they start by doing a little public speaking in their team, maybe then in their department, and then maybe, you know, build build up build up the audience that way and do to make little steps towards overcoming that fear. And the same with conflict. Um, uh, what are what are some smaller types of conflicts uh, we can help the individual deal with at work uh, that, and then build up the, the levels of conflict they need to deal with? Although it's it's hard to like plan for conflict now that I, now that I think about it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so what conflict can we design to help you overcome this? But I, I think the, the principle still stands. So like what are, I think it's uh, the manager and the individual need to work together and have an open dialogue and identify what is triggering in the workplace for you and how can what small steps can we make in um, overcoming those triggers or making them maybe they'll never be gone but they can be easier to deal with by uh, by building up to them in a, in a safe way and, and of course not punish the employee uh, when it's not going as well as it could have yeah I think supporting is obviously key I, I think I would love actually for managers to just get a bit of psychological training on human psychology and I don't know, just so that they are better equipped to support people. I think we often forget that the biggest part of their job is to help others, support them, no matter no matter what they think their job is. At the end of the day, they have a people-driven role and they need to be able to understand people and how to get the most out of them. And sometimes triggers can really get in the way of an individual achieving a particular objective that they had set for themselves I mean that's happened to me where you know for me sometimes I've had some triggers regarding dealing with high stakeholders and that's been definitely getting in the way sometimes of just me I guess showing more seniority and leadership so you know having a manager that actually understands and is ready to listen on these issues then we can work through a plan of how can we yeah how can we just get there in a more realistic manner basically so yeah I totally agree and I think often managers are not very well equipped because they just don't have the knowledge it's a big knowledge gap or sometimes they don't understand how big the people dimension is in their role as well I think, unfortunately, we still have some people that go through the manager path because they want to get more into the higher strategic levels as opposed to actually be dealing with people. So, yeah, I, I think there's a big education to do here, but I think it also comes with the workplace culture. Um, you know, what do they look for in a manager? What do they value in them? If If your workplace does not value good managers, then there's probably a big red flag from my perspective, at least, that... Um, being human is probably not going to be something very well well seen and well dealt with um, in that specific workplace. So, so yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's completely underestimated how much knowledge and awareness of human psychology is needed to be a people manager. And um, to, to add to 
how, how to make managers better equipped to deal with human traits. Um, I would also add, going back to the importance of having representation of human traits in managers, because I remember earlier in my career, I think I went, I went through this journey, which is a thing you shouldn't, it's, it's cheesy to say journey uh, these days, apparently, but I don't, know, I don't know how else to describe it. I went through this journey of um, entering the workforce in the UK, obviously, and I'm not from the UK originally. Um, but even like originally, I'm from Norway, but then my parents are originally from China. So it's all this to say that a huge part of my identity and a big part of my human traits is that I'm sort of a bit of a multifaceted immigrant and maybe you can relate as well being from France so entering the workforce in the UK was just like this massive culture shock of like not understanding what people uh, say yes. <laughs> uh, yeah not understanding what people say uh, number one because um, British English communication style is, is full of a lot of indirect speech which I just couldn't get my head around <laughs> oh my god yes it is it's yeah I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I had I had uh, quite a few issues with that myself. <laughs> I, still, I actually I st- had my manager. No, I actually had my manager, who also happened to be French at the time, telling me I had to stop being so French at work. <laughs> it's quite a funny conversation. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, yeah, so it's like a lot of indirect speech that I that I just had to get used to, and like and trying to suss out like what is this person saying, and and trying to interpret interpret British communication styles. There were uh, British or very London-centric workplace cultures that I had to understand as well. And, you know, all these layers of of confusion and, and culture difference that just comes with being an immigrant in the workplace. And so going back to what I said about having representation in leadership and in your in your set of managers, it really, really helped me at work when I had a manager who was also an immigrant. Um, and and those immigrant managers needn't have been... Actually, I don't think... Well, I've never had a manager who had a similar immigrant background as me in that, you know, like they were Chinese or Scandinavian, but they were immigrants. And, and that is such a... That's such a defining part of your experience, especially at work. And so it really, really helped my professional development and my ability to cope at work and adapt and uh, develop that I had a manager who was also an immigrant and could speak my language in the sense that we were we were kind of meeting in a common place of like yeah I also struggled when I first started working in this cultural context which was different from my own I also struggled with understanding the communication styles and uh, how you relate to work hours you know in Scandinavia for example you finish at 4 p.m on the dot and if you work longer then it's you're, you're, you're being it's frowned upon you know that sort of thing and, and these things are just different in, in different um, places and I don't I don't think it's right to say that one culture is better than others um, no definitely I think, not <laughs> I think maybe some cultures pride themselves a bit too much I have worked across several cultures now and I see some cultures be very proud of their cultural workplace style as if they are much better than others and, and I have problems with that but that's that's a rant for another episode I think the importance of all of this is the the strength of having diversity of cultures in the workplace and celebrating those and supporting those and talking openly about those rather than rather than having a majority culture that's so much better than the rest and the rest have to adapt um, 
yeah, I'm <laughs> going going off on a tangent, but really grateful for the managers I had who were also immigrants. Yeah, I, I think being able to identify with, with and recognize yourself in, in people that are higher higher up than you is definitely important. I mean, I've also learned a lot from expats who have been other co-workers or managers um, and have gone through also the cultural shock of, of working in the UK um, and have to deal with that indirect uh, type of communication, which it's, you know, still tricky at times for me, um, but, you know, I, I think much better equipped to deal with it today. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree that it helps. And, and having a manager, for example, who has gone through the same thing, there will be immediate empathy from that person because they know what it is and they can actually guide you through it much better than like if I had a British manager that person would have probably would have been actually really upset um, and not really understanding as to why I was being so French in the workplace and by that I mean being really direct <laughs> um, so so yeah I think sometimes what I found a bit sad is that especially these days where, where workplaces are trying to be a lot more inclusive and, and diverse Often we we only think that once we've opened the door to a more diverse crowd, then the job is done. But I think there's still so much work to do on actually embedding people, everyone, to work together well. And to do that, you need to educate people about all the differences that that come with a person. Um, and you know, their their race is often or their gender is it's often just the tip of the iceberg. There are so much more behind. And I think we don't do enough due diligence actually around understanding what people are about, how they might differ from you and so forth and why that's actually a great thing. It, it might feel, it might make you feel vulnerable sometimes because it feels unfamiliar, but there's something you can learn there. There's a different way you can look at things there. And I don't think we do enough I, I don't know exactly what we should be doing about it but there's not enough education not enough team working on those on those topics yeah I think that's it's the difference between diversity and inclusion so sort of diversity yeah. is is diversity is simply having diverse people in the quote-unquote room and inclusion is I'm, I'm oversimplifying this but inclusion is that that room is by default set up to incorporate a multitude of human traits and identities and uh, personalities and, and abilities and, and so forth. It makes me think about how workplaces deal with religious or traditional holidays. Because um, I think most workplaces, I think it's getting better that now, but mo most workplaces have a default uh, religious holiday which is Christmas and, and that's the kind of holiday where yeah. every, everyone's expected to be able to take time off and maybe offices close and, and that sort of thing and the workplace is diverse in the sense that if there's Id or Hanukkah or Diwali or Lunar New Year or any of these other holidays uh, then they are welcomed in that you know people acknowledge them but there's no default the, the default is still the Christmas, the, the Christian holiday. And to make that step over into inclusion, I think it's important that all of these holidays are equal. 
Uh, I'm not saying everyone gets <laughs> all of the holidays off, although that would be nice. Uh, but it's more that like that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more like you shouldn't feel like an, an anomaly or an outsider for taking time off for Lunar New Year or for Diwali, um, and you shouldn't feel like an anomaly for working over Christmas. And I still feel like uh, that's the case, even though the workplace makes an effort to welcome all these other traditions and yes you can make the argument that oh we're in a christian country so christmas is what's celebrated here but then then are you are you inclusive or are you just diverse you know that's it's it's um it's a it's a oh i'm gonna say that word again it's a journey (laughs) we we need to we need to go on to get get from one place to the other yeah i think it's important to also differentiate what what the country does as a whole versus what your workplace does so Yes, of course, when you're um, in Western Europe, like Christmas will be obviously a really big celebration. There will be time off, like bank holidays and all that around this. And it's grounded in the culture of those countries and the population as a whole obviously follows those traditions. And that's that's fine. But as a workplace, if, especially if you've invited, um, you know, co-workers from different countries um, especially now with remote work we have more and more people that work around the around the planet which is great then as a workplace you can make that cons- conscious choice of being like yeah let's let's be more inclusive and let's let's give that time to everyone and actually recognize those differences and celebrate them so one thing we that is hugely important, which we haven't really touched upon, is also the importance of neurodivergence and and uh, neurotypicalness. How do you say that? Neuro- <laughs> being ne- neurodivergent <laughs> and being neurotypical in the workplace, which we it's we haven't not talked about it on purpose. It's more that we don't feel like we can the two Sandrine and I can't really talk on behalf of other people who are not here. Uh, but that's also a topic we really really want to deep dive uh, into, perhaps for another episode. So. Yeah, if any of our listeners, uh, you know, have tips on uh, potential guests who want to come and talk about neurodivergence in the workplace, that would be very, very welcome. I I don't know about you, Sandrine, but I have very close family members who are neurodivergent as well, and it's it's on my mind a lot because um, it's a bit invisible, if you know what I mean. It's not as obvious as it other is things. yeah completely and it goes into not just the workplace but also how we design uh, i think neurodivergence is an aspect of accessibility and in- inclusive design that is often forgotten about it goes into how we write content and how we display information and, and, and lots of things it's lots of things to talk about so yeah all this to say we would like to have someone on the podcast to <laughs> to uh, talk about it with us that would be amazing there's something for me that um, I feel like we haven't really got deep enough into it yet. It's that feeling that I get sometimes where I feel like I am surrounded by robots at work and I feel like the only human there and I f- it feels really lonely. And that often happens when you're surrounded by people that overexert themselves in their professionalism and they're just, they're, they're, they're like hanging on to the professional hat. Like it's, I don't know, the most important thing above showing compassion, empathy, and understanding. And it's happened to me. I've seen it happening to others as well. And I find it's it's probably the most vulnerable place unless you can feel in the workplace because you don't know, you don't really know what to do. And it, it 
points the finger back at you because suddenly you're the person who's standing out of the group in not the best in not the best way clearly so yeah how do you feel about professionalism when it's clearly like over overdone basically I have such a complicated relationship with the notion of professionalism. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, we need to be professional to an extent in that we can't spend, you know, 50, 50 minutes of a 60 minute meeting talking about like our cars or whatever. I didn't even have a car. But, you know, like we're at work. We need to like talk about our profession, which is, you know, what we do for a living. Um, so it's not like either or, it's not like either be professional or not. But yeah, it's when it go goes a bit extreme, um, like you describe, and, and you feel a bit left out. I wonder if there's a big mismatch sometimes between um, the work environment and, and you as uh, an individual. Um, and it goes back to how can you use the interview process to suss out like what kind of workplace is this? Is this a workplace where the norms are that you are very professional and you don't talk about politics or you don't talk about um, uh, religion or you don't talk about, you know, all, all of these things that, that make people human and that go beyond the professional sphere? Again, it's easier said than done to just use the interview process to suss that out if you're already in that environment where you feel like everyone around you is so uh, oppressively, <laughs> oppressively professional and you don't know what to do. I think, I hope you can talk to your manager about it um, if you have a good relationship to your manager. Uh, that's usually the first port of call for these things. Um, and it's hard in those instances to be the lone person trying to change things um so it helps to have the support of your manager to make a bit of more of a ground up but systemic change in and trying not to be not to be so incredibly professional at times yeah i mean i think there are positive and negative aspects of professionalism obviously um i, I think the positive aspects being uh, for me I guess someone who will, you know, show up and be dedicated and is reliable and is held accountable. But I think for me, the negative aspects of it is often where it starts becoming a thing where people think they have to keep their head down as opposed to actually shout about something that seems wrong to them. Uh, they try to, I guess, remove emotion when sometimes emotion is the most natural way to react to something that's just happened and they kind of dismiss it or ask their colleagues to dismiss it. Um, and I think that's where you start struggling as a human being. Like sometimes there are some situations that happen at work, like situations of conflict where um, some things are, you know, unfair or I don't know, can make you angry. And I think it's just normal to feel that way. And sometimes when you have, I don't know, an expectation of just withdrawing those feelings, it's, I think it's actually more counterproductive than anything. And then it's about walking that line between showing emotion without also wearing down on others too much. And it's a really fine line to balance, but I think it is important. And I think you can also show emotion by acting non-emotional I have seen some people just shutting down and by believing that they will show no emotion by doing that but actually they are full of emotion when they show this when they do this so like I think and that's what I'm saying where 
I, I think it can also bring its its whole lot of negative traits in that in that way. So, and it can make you feel lonely sometimes when others act or try to act around that mold. I just think that inherently being human at work for me is to be accepting to show emotion and to show your your uniqueness. I would say through obviously everything that you've gone through in life or who you are, etc. And and I think what's hard is when the workplace is not equipped and they want to force you into that mold <clears throat> that is over-professional <laughs> or whatever you call it, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's about being comfortable at work, whether being comfortable means you're the type of person who talks about your feelings all the time and and are vulnerable all the time or you could also be very very comfortable not talking about your feelings all the time but but maybe sometimes um it's it's i mean it, it it we could equally go in the opposite direction right where we create a new mold where everyone has to open up all the time like we pointed out in the beginning uh, of this conversation and, and that's not good either when we force everyone to be incredibly open so it's about not having a mold in the first place and just having an environment where the mold is to be your human self. All right. So I think we've done a nice little tour around the topic of being human at work. It's it's a really difficult topic. I think we really wanted to get in depth into this topic, but it's also it's quite a subjective one because I guess we all have a very different perspective of what it means to be human at work. And that's because we're, we're all very different human beings, right? Uh, yeah so that will conclude uh, this episode um, for this week but we'll be back in a couple of weeks for a new episode uh, again as Susan said if you are uh, or if you know someone who is interested to uh, be a guest on the podcast about neurodivergence uh, please contact us we have an email address on the website uh, designcafe.com Otherwise, uh, you can, if you enjoy the episode or you enjoy the podcast in general, you can also rate us on your podcast platform. It's always very helpful for us to know how we're doing. And yeah, have a lovely rest of your day and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>